hello everybody and welcome back to the Cat Fink cast. I am delighted to have you here with me. Um, we're on to episode five. What? And today we're going to do this episode on glue and cue the really bad joke about sniffing glue. No, we are going to address the sticky stuff. Um, and this is you know, it's a much larger topic than I had even <laughs> originally anticipated when when stepping into it. And so what I have concluded is that we're going to actually do this in three parts. Since um, we apparently have a, a far more, we have a much more far-reaching history with glue and adhesives and it's had a, an incredible impact on our development as humans. So the first episode that we're doing today is just going to be on, mm, let's say, more the history of glue and um, natural glues and adhesives used essentially up until the 1900s, which is when we saw the really big shift uh, that was motivated by the world wars, essentially, that created this massive push um, towards development of the adhesives that we use today. And so, um, yeah, today we're gonna cover essentially natural glues and the background of them. And then on the next episode, we're going to cover modern and synthetic glues, um, essentially post-World War. Then we're gonna do a third episode that will be addressing uh, some gluing techniques and um, things that are actually applicable to your practice today, what glues you might want to use as a woodworker, um, etc. So I feel like this is my um, my standard caveat every time that we we have a topic is this is my little podcast and <laughs> there's no way that I can cover everything that this uh, topic involves. So if there's something that I bring up that you find fascinating, um, I'm going to include some links to resources that I've found in the description for the podcast if there's something you want to look in further. Um, and I definitely encourage you to do some of your own research on the things that, that you find particularly fascinating because there certainly are plenty of things that, uh, that I've discovered that are very interesting. So let us dive right in. So before we get uh, too far in, I'm going to go over a couple little terms um, that will be mostly less applicable to this particular episode, but um, I think that it's worth addressing right off the top and then we've kind of got these differences in our minds before we get too far. Um, so when we're talking about glue, open time refers to how long can uh, the glue be out and you can be working with it. So open time is when it's open to air. Closed time is how long after your surfaces are in contact do you have to make adjustments. So if you think about something like uh, wood glues, the open time, you kind of want them to get closed up very quickly, but then you still have a little bit of time 
to work with it to make adjustments before the next thing. Whereas if you think of something like super glue, as soon as it's together, you're kind of out of time to be making adjustments. Clamp time would be how long does it need to be clamped to hold? So again, just throwing out examples, when you've got wood glue, generally speaking, you want to have it in clamps for at least 30 minutes to an hour that you you need that to be in clamps to get a good strong hold. Whereas some things like super glue, you kind of put it together and it is where it is. Like you putting it in a clamp or doing something like this, it's not really going to make a difference to the adhesion. So clamp time is how long do you need it to be in clamps to get the adhesion that you want. Uh, cure time is going to be how long before it's at full strength. So again, back to our examples, when you're using a wood glue, like a PVA glue, you only really need that to be in your clamps, depending on what you're doing, obviously, but you need it to be in the clamps for that hour. But so you have, you can take the clamps off at that moment and use your clamps for another glue up or another project, but you don't want to be putting any weight or or any strain on those joints until you've had the full 24 hour of cure time. So clamp time is how long it actually needs to be held together to get the adhesion you want. And the cure time is how long you need before you're actually able to use the piece and put strain on it. So big surprises for me, glue it is apparently something that has been a, a really big part of um, our development of, as humans and something that is used by archaeologists as a marker of um, when we began sort of shifting in our development as thinking people. So we actually have early traces of human use of adhesives from about 200,000 years ago. So we're talking Neanderthals, we're talking the Middle Pleistocene era where we had human ancestors um, using birch bark tar to bind stone tools to wooden handles. And um, this was done simply by uh, burning the birch bark next to a stone that was either vertical or like slightly over overleaning the fire. And then that leaves a resin on the stone, which could then be uh, scraped off and used to bind the like the heads of um, hammers or axes or things like that. So then the first compound adhesive, this was sort of a, an interesting mm, contrast, I guess I would say. So because we have this evidence of the Neanderthals using uh, the birch bark tar, but then the first time we have a compound adhesive where somebody obviously had been able to have the cognitive processes required to experiment with and create a mixture of compounds that would um, provide them with better strength than, say, simply scraping some, you know, tar off of a, a rock and uh, sticking their stone axe together with it. So the first compound adhesive that was found 
uh, was in Subudu, South Africa, and this is 70,000 years old still. So we're still going really far back that we're finding evidence of humans who are at the point where they're mixing, um, what was it? It was acacia. So it was a plant gum that it's, uh, it's like a sap. So it oozes out of the tree when the tree is wounded or when there's, you know, damage to the bark, you have this gum that oozes out of the tree and they were mixing that with red ochre, which is a natural iron oxide and some fats what the what the ochre did was it caused the plant gum to be less brittle and it actually acts as a desiccant so it's drying and that prevents the gum from dissolving when there's a lot of moisture like damp conditions so this would be like a big leg up on previous versions because if you just are using a tree sap a lot of these types of adhesives are going to be very brittle. Like once they've dried out, it's something that could snap very easily. So adding the ochre and adding the fat makes this something that is a little more resistant to moisture, which would be a big benefit, and a little bit more flexible. So uh, something that you definitely want from a glue joint. And we find artifacts from ancient Egypt including a laminated casket in King Tutankhamun's tomb. So King Tut had uh, laminations and veneers being used at that time. And those were being done with animal glues. And also interesting that we're finding that the ancient Egyptians were also using animal glues. Um, they were also using casein glues and uh, starch-based glues. So they had like a, f a fair variety of these materials that they were working with by that point in time. A lot of credit for the huge success of Genghis Khan and his domination of Middle East and Eastern Asia. A lot of that credit is given to the technical technological development of very powerful bows that they were using for archery. So the Mongols were known for their horseback riding and their wrestling and their archery. These are things that these armies were, were absolutely famous for. And the bows were made of a bamboo core and horn, like so animal horn was used on the belly, which would be like the part of the bow that was facing towards the archer. And then they used sinew on the back of the bow. And that was all bound together with animal glue. So um, the glues that they found there was a huge part of what created the Mongol hordes that were able to uh, absolutely dominate that part of the world for a significant amount of time. I, as I said, I'm not going to be able to cover every little bit about every glue that's out there. An interesting thing to to discover when looking into this topic is kind of that just it seems like just about anything can be used for this purpose. Obviously, there's going to be some things that work better than others, but you know, if it's sticky, <laughs> you can uh, stick things together with it. So, so what I found was that in Europe, we, we aren't really seeing wide use of glues until about 1500 
which is much later than um, some other places. It was only really in a period of, of a lot of growth and development until about 1700. And at that point in time, it kind of, it, it didn't fall out of use entirely, but it was, it didn't develop further. But during that time, you had cabinet and furniture makers like Thomas Chippendale, which would be a, a name that anybody involved in furniture or not would, would probably recognize. This is when you had these types of producers who were using adhesives to hold their, their products together. And it would be during that era that we were starting to find um, commercial glue production and actual like glue factories. These would have been making animal glues. So animal glue is made from the hide or the bones or the you know ligaments of um cattle it's it's a byproduct of the of the meat industry or and also fish actually there was like a huge amount of fish that was being used for um for glue production so um we still find animal glue in use today um certainly much, much less than it would have been <laughs> in the past up until, you know, the 1900s. But um, there are still some craftspeople who are using animal glues for their craft, specifically for musical instruments. Animal glue, it's, it's an interesting, mm, it's an interesting thought. I've never worked with a hide glue. Animal glue needs to be heated in order to function. So um, they, it's incredibly viscous when um, it's too, when it's cool. And so it needs to be heated up to about 60 degrees Celsius to be able to be applied. You can still buy animal glues, particularly fish glues in a, in a liquid form. But um, if you're going to be using animal glues, anybody who's still doing that or wanting to do it for novelty <laughs> reasons um you end up having to have like a glue pot and having to heat the glue um to be able to apply it one of the the reasons why this is certainly not something that would be in favor now with modern glues available to us is because an animal glue doesn't have a very good resistance to moisture and it's also something that like molds or fungus or i imagine even um, animals would be attracted to so if you have the ability to uh, use modern glues that aren't going to mold or go funky or break down. Um, when you look at the, the joinery that was developed in the past for the purpose of furniture making, you know, that's because we couldn't rely on glue. So you look at the the way that furniture is designed and made now a lot of it is absolutely dependent on the adhesives whereas in the past you knew that the adhesives if you were using a, an animal or a vegetable based glue that it was going to be reliable for a little while but at the end of the day if you wanted this piece to have longevity, you needed to have a joint that could be relied upon to hold 
fairly well on its own and that's why you have all of the dovetailing and all of the mortise and tenon and then beyond that all of the like splining um, and pegging of of pieces so there's like redundancies built into joinery to ensure that the physical connection is going to be sufficient to last because you can't really depend on the chemical uh, connection of just glue surfaces as being reliable long term so yeah that's a little bit of a tangent on <laughs> on the animal glue um, there was also vegetable glues, like starch-based glues. So anything made of starches, grains, they were used in things like hardwood, uh, plywood, and furniture. So the first U.S. postage stamp came out in 1847, and that used a starch-based adhesive on it. And at this point, it's mostly just kind of a historical thing like vegetable vegetable glues are pretty much out of fashion at this point the nice thing about them was that they had a long pot life which is to say they could be sitting in the pot without going bad which uh, or going off which would be advantageous vegetable glues were essentially dependent on dissolution the evaporation of the water that was in them so you had a starch that was creating that bonding but it was generally in a water solution and so the way that that needed to dry and set up and have adhesive qualities was for it to be held together long enough that the water could all evaporate which meant that these were things that needed to remain in clamps until they were completely dry otherwise they wouldn't have any any holding power these were things that were um still really widely used during the first world war for things like veneering um, but of course, if you're depending upon the evaporation of water to give your, you your adhesive power, then you wouldn't have very good moisture resistance. So as soon as you, as soon as you were in a damp environment or there was humidity, then those bonds would start to, to go. And then similar to an animal glue, you're susceptible to attack from microorganisms, from fungus and from uh, molds and things that want to grow. This would be things like what we think of as like a flour-based paste. These are things used for wallpaper or stuff like that. So there were some different um, like protein-based adhesives, some that are essentially out of style at this point displaced by more modern glues like the phenolic resin glues in the uh, like in the modern plywood industry such as soybean glue so this was using the protein specifically from the soy and um, hot pressing it to create things specifically like plywood one that's still not completely out of use is casein glue so you have glues that are made from the casein is a protein in milk and so you would um, if you've ever made curds and whey which i guess not that many people these days are making curds and whey but um, if you have milk 
and you separate it by adding some sort of acid so like a uh, lemon juice or a vinegar you can make your milk separate into the curds which is the solids and whey which is just the like kind of cloudy water that will come out of that so if you set the whey the water aside just with the curds then you would um, dissolve those curds in an alkaline solvent something like lime water and then there's some other chemicals that get added like um, formaldehyde and like copper chloride things like this so there it's definitely a process um, to make a case in glue you can buy them still in uh, dry powders that you mix with water before they're before they're used but they have a fairly short pot life so or like yeah again the pot life is once you've mixed it you kind of need to use it it doesn't keep well once it's been mixed and you can kind of extend that time by adding more water but then you lose some of the moisture resistance of the the glue which is one of the things that case and glue had that some of the other older natural glues were were lacking in was that bit of moisture resistance so it definitely was a useful a useful glue and is still used in some industries for things like laminated timbers and doors that would be used only in interior and once again I think that it's going to be rare that you're running into this being used in western industries at this point but some of these older glues are still being used um, at a global level they also have other issues with um, the fact that they can cause staining. They tend to react with uh, tannic acid. So woods that have a lot of tannins like oak, like furniture, would cause a lot of staining. And so it makes them not great for something like... They're also, because they're quite hard they're hard on your woodworking tools you'd like dull your blades pretty quickly if you're having to interact with something that's been glued with casein and again they're still one of these natural natural enough <laughs> and we're talking about something that's got formaldehyde and copper chloride in it but still um, susceptible to things like mold and fungus so it's um when you make something out of food that you're planning to keep kicking around your house, then something is probably going to want to eat it at some point. Blood glue. This I found really fascinating and was something that I actually hadn't heard about before. For the most part, uh, blood glue is now largely displaced by phenolic resin glues, but it is still used in some places. Um primarily in the plywood industry um, sometimes in combination with like a soybean protein um, this was another one that required hot pressing in order to get the the curing of the glue that you that you really needed for maximum strength so so you would get uh, dried blood blood that had been uh, separated from like the serum would be separated out of fresh whole blood and what was left would be a uh, blood powder and then that would get mixed with water and some other chemicals like 
uh, lime and uh, soda, like a caustic soda. And in some ways, these were like a forerunner to the modern synthetic resins because of that that need for the hot pressing in order to um, have it go off. Once they're dry, the blood glues are a little less strong than like the casein glues, but they are much stronger at moisture resistance. So they were able to hold up against uh, the weather, so to say. Obviously, none of these things were very good in literally in weather, but just in uh, when you consider houses and um, annual fluctuations in temperature and moisture levels that happen, especially homes that are not that well insulated and not that well, um, we, you know, modern building practices create this envelope within homes for better or worse that we're able to um, keep very consistent moisture levels and consistent temperature levels but that's very new and um so if you have a home that's going to have this dampness in the air during certain seasons then that's going to happen every year over and over in this cycle of the seasons then then your furniture or whatever that you've used these materials for is going to be very susceptible to starting to delaminate, starting to come apart with time just from those cycles of of annual moisture levels. So we have some other adhesive methods or technologies that start to come into play when we get into, say, the 1800s, when we're talking about um, natural rubber being used or starting to get into, like, vulcanization, using um, electrical currents to connect metal plating with rubber so that we have these really strong bones. We're starting to get into this like era where we we're seeing modern adhesives beginning to develop. So that's what we're going to be talking about in the next episode, as well as a lot of the modern glues that that we think of and that we primarily use these days. At at the end of the day, the modern glues that we have now are really advantageous to us. We've um, really rocketed into a whole other era of, of humanity in many ways because of the adhesives that we use. We are technically in a podcast intended towards woodworking. So Um, Next episode is going to be aimed at more synthetic and modern adhesives that we've developed and I'm going to be keeping an eye particularly towards the ones that are interesting to us in the wood industry. We can really easily get off on a, a pretty long tangent because there's a lot of pretty fascinating stuff going on in the world of glues and adhesives but I'll try and keep it fairly on track when we get there. So that is a very quick splash across the world of uh, adhesives from the ancient world up up until very recently in our history. It's been almost entirely, it has been entirely based off of these animal and plant based products and um, suddenly we hit the 20th century and 
we got motivated very quickly into some new directions with glues. So more on that in episode two of this three-part series on glue. So that's it for today. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, especially if you have a glue-up conundrum that you'd like addressed in the upcoming episode, you can email me at catfink at gmail.com. I really enjoy making this podcast and I hope you're enjoying listening. And if so, there are a few things you can do which are tangible ways of showing your support. Subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts helps to let them know to recommend it to others. And if you want to throw a few dollars in the hat, you can hop over to my Patreon page. The link is attached to this podcast. For the cost of a cup of coffee, you can not only support the show, but also be eligible for perks that are available only to my patrons. So on that note, we will see you folks next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye.